Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I don't know if you know this or not, but Americans have a long history, a sordid history, with authority. We have a long, sordid history with authority. Someone just cheered for that, I think. Like, that was kind of an interesting thing. We started off with a rejection of authority. Those who wrote the Constitution had an obvious distrust for centralized authority. They created three branches of government that would hold one another accountable There have been a string of assassination attempts. We've seen Lincoln and JFK and Reagan all have attempts upon their life, some successful, some unsuccessful. In fact, many of us, we we have it on our our bumper stickers and our T-shirts. We have this phrase that comes from the earliest days of our nation. It says, don't tread on me. Don't tread on me. culture since the 1950s has been uh, kind of uh, bound to this concept of rebellion. We created the concept of the teenager, which is bound up in this sense of anti-authoritarianism and uh, sticking it to those who are in authority, sticking up against the man. Man, got a little bit of ringing up here. But if we think that anti-authoritarianism is just a problem for Americans, we're mistaken. In fact, this is bound up in our hearts. And our text today draws us to this concept of, of it's Jews and Gentiles alike, all humanities that are rejecting the authority of God, rejecting Jesus as truly a king, rejected by a mob of angry Jews, rejected by an authoritarian politician that's put into his place by God himself. See, this text this morning highlights a central tenet that has existed in all the scriptures. Man's sin pushes away from God's loving and caring rule over him. But notably this morning, what we see is that this very rejection of authority gives Jesus authority. That this rejection of Jesus as king actually establishes his rule and reign in a new way. See, here's our big idea this morning. Jesus was rejected by Jews and Gentiles to become recognized as a universal king. That he's sent to his death, crucify, crucify him from this mixture of Gentile and Jewish audiences so that he might become a true king. I want to just note a thing about the structure here this morning, kind of lay out exactly uh, some of the things that's happening here. And so Dan's put this slide up in front of us that really we see this pattern. We see two different phases where there's these uh, kind of on the left-hand side of what you're looking at, you see this uh, pattern of accusation, investigation, proclamation, and rebuttal. 
So our text invites us to this accusation that starts off in verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you, speaking of Jesus. And Pilate then goes in and investigates with Jesus in verse 33. Are you the king of the Jews? And, and of course, he finds no guilt in him in verse 38. So he makes this proclamation, I find no guilt in him. And so they offer this rebuttal. And that when G Pilate offers them to release Jesus to them, they want Barabbas instead. It happens again in verse 19 or in chapter 19, verses 1 through 17. There's an accusation. He made himself out to be the Son of God in verse 7. An investigation, verses 8 through 12. Uh, Pilate asks Jesus directly, Where are you from? And then there's this proclamation in verses 13 through 14. Behold your king. This is your king. This is your guy. And in verses 15, we have no king but Caesar. So there's this pattern, this back and forth that's happening in this passage that kind of frames our passage. And we want to dive in this morning in, in chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. Now, I just want to make one note. If you go to our community groups, you were supposed to study 28 through 40 of chapter 18. And I went ahead and I just did all of 19, 1 through 17 as well, because I felt like as I looked at the two texts, they just matched each other. I had missed that before. So I'm sorry. Go ahead and do your community groups as normal. But I just wanted to say that. We smashed some new verses in here, and I hopefully it didn't throw us off too much. What we see in verses 28 through 40 is that Jesus's kingdom is otherworldly. And so if we look at John chapter 18, starting in verse 28, uh, it says this, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die happening here. See, the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate. They take him away from this kind of kangaroo court with the high priest where he's slapped and, and Jesus is asking questions. If I've done something wrong, tell me. If I haven't, why are you hitting me? And so they've, they found him guilty, presumably, and now they're taking him to his death sentence to Pilate. In fact, the, the place that they take him is this word praetorium. It's the place where all the soldiers in Jerusalem would have been housed, and Pilate himself was temporarily making this his home. And so he's had this trial with the Jews in verses 19 through 24 of chapter 18, but now he goes and stands trial with Pilate. And what happens is that these religious leaders, even though they're kind of willing to kind of undermine some of the law and the aspects of the law, they don't want to go inside because apparently there's this, uh, this place in the Mishnah, in their teachings, that if you went into a Gentile's house, you became at risk of being unclean because you don't know specifically if there might be a dead body in there. See, the idea was that in Rome, all the time, Jews were, uh, or not Jews, but Romans, you, they may have aborted a baby or, or done something else. And so you didn't know what was in there, as Carson has kind of highlighted in his commentary, and you ran risk of becoming unclean. So they will not go inside. And what happens then is Pilate is just walking in and out of this praetorium, kind of interacting with these two different audiences. But John's perspective is, is worth noting. See, these Jews are concerned uh, about the law, but not about righteousness. 
They're concerned about legality and, and keeping up Leviticus and Exodus and holding the law close and dear, but they miss the righteousness of Jesus. They're keeping the law while actively seeking a righteous man's death. And this becomes most clear in verses 29 through 30. See, they say that there's no justice in mob justice. And that's exactly what we see here. This angry mob is going to skirt justice and bring injustice to a righteous king. So the Jews, in verse 29, they have no accusation. In fact, it's almost comical, right? What charge do you bring against this man? In verse 29 and verse 30, they, they respond and they say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Sounds like a three-year-old, right? If you weren't wicked, we wouldn't bring him to you. It's the circular reasoning that's happening in their minds. It's like they're caught off guard. But while there's no sense of or clear sense of the crime that's been committed, notice that they have a very clear sense of the punishment that they want to be brought forth. Verse 31, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They wanted Jesus dead, not just punished not just imprisoned, dead. Of course, this isn't new to the book of John. It's going back to chapter 5 that these Jewish authorities in Jerusalem were trying to put Jesus to death. But isn't it interesting? The same Jews that won't enter a Gentile, Gentile house seem to know that they're skirting the intention of the law. Our laws don't allow us to put anyone to death. Pilate's not about to simply just rubber stamp their plans. And in verses 33 through 38, we see Jesus speaks directly to Pilate. So look at verse 33 with me. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am king. And for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? See, Pilate starts with this conversation and he asks Jesus if he's a king in verse 33. Now, the question here isn't, hey, are you a king? The question is, are you a threat? Are you a threat to me? Are you a threat to the nation of Rome? Because if you are, you are surely going to die. In fact, this is the primary tactic of these Jewish authorities. They're trying to paint Jesus as a dissident, as a rebellious person, so that they can have him put to death. And so Jesus responds to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. Look at verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Notice what he does here. He starts and ends with the same phrase. My kingdom is not of the world. And he provides one proof in the middle. 
He says, if my kingdom were not of this world or were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, right? If, if, if I was really a king, if I was really here to establish a throne, if I was really here to rule over people, I would have servants fighting you right now. I wouldn't have rebuked Peter in the garden early on. I would have allowed for this fight to take place. See, Jesus isn't leading a nation, and he isn't a threat to Rome, and that can be proved because nobody's fighting. He's not advocating for anyone to fight. In fact, what stands out is Jesus has come to bear witness about the truth. This is what he says in verse 37. For this purpose I was born, and for this, this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness about the truth. Jesus doesn't come with swords and spears. He's about truth and witness. To which Pilate responds, what is truth? Perhaps you've had the poor experience in your life of someone trying to act out this thing happening, and Pilate looks off into the distance and he says, what is truth? I don't think it's filled with this kind of existential angst that we want to read into it. Pilate is not a postmodern. What Pilate is, is a Roman politician that has a minor uprising to quell. And his statement about truth isn't intended to be some kind of existential statement. It's meant to be dismissive and belittling to our Savior. So Pilate comes out in verses 38 through 40. Look at what he says. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. See, he comes and he introduces Jesus again, and he says, I find no guilt in him. In fact, this is the first of three different statements that Pilate is going to give to this crowd where he will claim the innocence of Jesus. And he tries then to appease the crowd that's upset by letting them release Jesus. I don't know what the strategy is here, but I'm guessing that it proclaims some sense of guilt for Jesus, but doesn't actually kill Jesus. So it is kind of a halfway point, but the Jews reject it anyway. Instead, they cry out in verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, who's this Barabbas guy? John tells us that he's a robber. And that's true. I'm sure he was robbing. He was stealing. But he's also an insurrectionist. Mark 15 tells us that there was this insurrection, this uprising that Barabbas was a part of, and in the midst of that uprising, that he was probably involved in a murder. So to be clear, Jesus is accused of being a threat to Rome, being an insurrectionist, while they let an insurrectionist go. See, when we take a step back from all this, we see that Jesus has always been a true king. You know, Israel had a long history with kings, too. Not just Americans, Israel had a long history with kings. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they, they come to Samuel, the prophet, and there had been this kind of system of judges that people would kind of rule over Israel, but not really be a king. They're just like one person that would kind of rise up and, and defend them if necessary. 
But they approach Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, and they ask him to establish a king over them. They want to have a king like the other nations have a king. And Samuel even kind of warns them, saying, hey, if you're going to have a king, they're going to take your sons and your daughters for their purposes, and they're going to take your land for their purposes. And Samuel kind of lays out this dire warning of what this is going to be like, but they still want it. And so we go through Saul and kind of the tragedy that is Saul. And David comes along and he's got this mixture of like victory, but also unfaithfulness. And it's this topsy-turvy thing. But by the time David is dead, by the time Solomon is dead, this line of kings just descends further and further and further into this practice of idolatry. In fact, if you read the books of First and Second Kings, there's this formula that they would introduce a king, and then they would talk about who his father was, and then they would talk about whether he walked in the idolatry of his father or not whether he walked in the ways of wickedness or in the ways of righteousness. And more often than not, they were more wicked than righteous. See, by the end of Second Kings, because of this constant turning to idolatry, the northern tribes are gone. The southern tribe of Judah is cut off and all the people of Israel are led into captivity. And so Israel had a king problem too. But what happens in 1 Samuel 8 was so interesting because uh, God speaks to Samuel, and in chapter 8, verse 7, he says this, the Lord said to Samuel, obey, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So choosing a king was rejection of God. And even to this day, we have to be careful that our politicians don't function as saviors. I've been listening to a podcast recently about the political career of Jim Traficant. Traficant was first elected sheriff of Mahoning County, that's Youngstown, from 1981 to 1985. And it comes out in this podcast that he had taken political donations from two different mob bosses that were in war with one another. In 1983, he was tried for racketeering. They found him out. They had an audio recording of him saying that he had taken money from this mob clan from Cleveland. And they had a signed confession that he had done that as well. And so Trafficant represents himself in trial claiming he was doing his own undercover investigation into organized crime and was acquitted, amazingly enough. And if that weren't enough, Travikant was elected to Congress and re-elected eight times. The podcast records testimony after testimony of people in the Youngstown area saying that Jim Trafficant was the only one who could do anything about crime in their area, but the politician was as guilty as the crime bosses. I'll give you another one, the story in June 22nd of 2022 in Newsweek. A, a drunk mayor crashes her car after meeting with families of victims of their, their daughter died in a car crash. So she goes and has this meeting, says how sorry she is, has a couple drinks of wine, and goes and runs her car into a tree. Only a few days after advocating stronger penalties for drunk driving. We have a king problem, don't we? You and I have a king problem. Not just in this country, we have a lack of righteousness. 
And it's not just for those who reign over us or rule over us in political aspects. It's ourselves. It's bound up in our own hearts. That if you put me in this place of power and authority, I would surely run it into the ground. We're unfit to rule over ourselves. We have no one among us who's going to rule without sin. And so where are we? We have a king problem. It's where we turn in chapter 19. And John so beautifully highlights the character of our true king. See, Jesus' kingdom is otherworldly in verses 28 through 40. Pilate's authority is given by God in verses 1 through 17, and it serves to highlight the nature of Jesus. So what happens in verses 1 through 4 is that Jesus is mocked and beaten. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and and struck him with their hands. John highlights the irony, right? He talks about this crown of thorns, this purple robe of majesty, this statement on the lips of these men that hail the King of the Jews. It goes without saying that Jesus is submitting to this mockery. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't fight back. He does exactly what Isaiah said he would do. He's like a sheep before a seer is a silent. He didn't open his mouth. And so Pilate takes him and he presents him as humiliated. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may find or that you may know that I find no guilt in him, right? I've just beaten the snot out of this guy, and he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't confessed to anything. And so verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crowns of thorns and the purple robes, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Two more times, Pilate pronounces that he finds Jesus innocent, verse 4 and in verse 6. So the natural question is, why doesn't he just let Jesus go free? So obviously, this crowd is riled up, and a riled up Jewish crowd in Jerusalem over the weekend of Passover is a really bad thing for Pilate's job security. So Pilate's half measures and appeasements are there just to try and get this crowd to calm itself down. The only problem is that this crowd isn't calming down. And in verse 6, they call for Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 7, he says, they say, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself son of God. The statement's true enough, right? If you look back in Leviticus 24, anyone who's, who's said anathema or has created some uh, statement that is wrong or is against God or is claiming some type of deity, they're supposed to be put to death. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Uh, Leviticus 24 calls for someone who speaks blasphemy to be stoned to death. 
And so here these Jews are, and they're advocating to Pilate, not because they want to stone Jesus, they want to crucify Jesus. Why? Why do they want to crucify Jesus and not stone Jesus? These people that are so concerned about the law, you think they're not familiar with Leviticus 24? The issue here is that Deuteronomy 21 says that anyone who's hanged on a tree is cursed. They just don't want him dead. They want him squelched. They want him cursed. They want to undo his reputation as a teacher, as a savior. They want to cut it out underneath the knees. And so these Jews weren't just looking for Jesus to die. They were looking for him to be shamed, and only Pilate could crucify him. So Pilate goes back in, and he has a second powwow with Jesus in verses 8 through 11. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus won't answer Pilate's questions about where he's from, and Pilate presses him about the seriousness of the moment, and it culminates to the statement in verse 10, you have no authority, or excuse me, in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Like Jesus just turned the tables on Pilate. He insinuates that Pilate is not as powerful as he thinks. In fact, any power that Pilate has has been given to him, not by Caesar, not by any other person. His authority has been given to him from heaven. It's worth remembering what Jesus said to Peter in the garden in verse 11. If we go back up to 1811, it says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So here in chapters 18 and 19, what John is painting is this picture of a sovereign God who's using Pilate and Judas and all of these other characters to bring his only begotten son to the cross. So we see that in verses 12 through 17. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them him over to be crucified. It's as if we can feel the crowd getting more and more unsettled. And it culminates this statement in verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. The same people who would test Jesus about his faithfulness, would test Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar, 
The same crowd that wouldn't enter the praetorium for fear of being defiled. The same people who wanted an insurrectionist released to them now claim their allegiance to their only king, Caesar. Isn't that what they say? We have no king but Caesar. What do we make of this, this passage? I mean, ultimately, the passage presents us with these two critical statements from Jesus. Verse 36 of chapter 18, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. And then he compliments that statement in chapter 19, verse 10. He says, You, Pilate, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. In other words, it's as if Jesus is telling Pilate and us, my kingdom is otherworldly and your authority isn't yours. So God is using his authority, his rule and reign to give us a king. You ever thought about this? Only Jesus is the acceptable king. Jesus is the only acceptable king to us and to the Father. Start with that second phrase. Jesus is an acceptable king to the Father. You know, it stood out to me this week. I was reading a John Piper article, and I'll quote from it here in a second. But G Piper is highlighting this idea that the Son of God always possessed authority. But what's weird is that in the Gospels, you have this statement like in, in Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And some would interpret that to say Jesus kind of did something right to gain a little bit of extra credit with the Father, and now the Father is just giving him something that he didn't have before. But I don't think that's necessarily what's happened. In eternity past, the Son of God has always possessed authority because he's always been God. He's always possessed the qualities of deity, transcendence, holiness, majesty, and all of that was his. But when the Son of God took on flesh... He was to once again be exalted. Listen to Piper's statement. He says, before the incarnation, God the Son existed, but Jesus, the God-man, did not yet exist. Before the incarnation, God the Son existed with all authority, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, had not yet died for sinners, and the sentence of condemnation hanging over his people had not yet been stripped from Satan's hand by the shedding of Jesus' blood. But it is precisely the God-man, Jesus Christ, and the crucified and risen Savior, triumphant over sin and Satan, and exalted to the right hand of God, and installed as the Lord of the universe. He, he was the Son of God without the flesh before in eternity past. And on Christmas Day, as we celebrate it, Jesus is taken on flesh. Jesus of Nazareth is born. He is truly God and truly man. And now Jesus is proved innocent in that manhood. You see this in our passage? Pilate proclaims him innocent some three times. He's accused, he's beaten, he's got all of these things going on, and yet he never raises a, a unrighteous hand. He never speaks in his own defense. Jesus' innocence proved that he is of another world, right? 
here he is having his very life taken from him, and he doesn't sin in response. So this king was sentenced to his death. The innocent king sentenced to death by wicked men. And the crowds chant, crucify him, crucify him. And once again, just as in the days of Samuel, God is rejected as king. But he's not just rejected by Jews. This Gentile politician is there also sending him to his death. What God rejected, or what what men rejected, excuse me, God condoned. And after three days after his crucifixion, this God-man would be raised to new life. And he would get the seal of approval from the Father. Listen to how the New Testament speaks. We already talked about Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Philippians chapter 2. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is what Daniel 7 prophesied, that one like a son of man would come and the father would give him dominion and glory and a kingdom. This is what's been talked about in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands. In John 17, the hour has come. Father, glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him all authority over all flesh. See, Jesus is truly authoritative, truly king. And as he was resurrected to new life, the Father handed him everything, heaven and earth, anything in between, so that as the theologians have said, Jesus looks at every square inch of this universe and declares, that's mine. That's mine. So Jesus is an acceptable king before the Father. And he's an acceptable king for us. If he's good enough for heaven, he's good enough for earth. If he can stand in the presence of God, he should rule on the throne of our hearts. If he can bear the scrutiny of God's holiness, he should bear the scrutiny of our reason and logic. Jesus stands in the throne room of God and he advocates on behalf of sinners like you and me. And so he has every right to rule and reign in us. No other earthly king can do this. No politician can stand in his place. He alone is righteous to stand before God. He alone can plead his righteous life on our behalf. So this morning, if you're here, Jesus either is your king or he's not. Start with this. If he's not your king, what do you do? If you've lived in these patterns of just kind of rebellion, waywardness, I just want to give you this thought. Right now, you are writing a record of your insubordination. There's a record being recorded of your acts of rebellion against this king. You are storing up for yourself evidence in a coming day of judgment. So right now, turn 
be reconciled to this King of heaven. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, he is my king. He, I've submitted to him. I, I, I find that his righteousness is my only claim. See, in this relationship to King Jesus, we have to leave our don't tread on me life behind, don't we? We might say that about political spheres here on earth, but if you have a don't tread on me attitude toward the Father in heaven, something's wrong. Every moment is an opportunity to show our hearts and minds submitted to this King. Every moment we can live in submission to this sovereign God who has given us Christ to cover our wrongs, to bring us back into his household, help us walk in righteousness. be honest with you this morning, there are more moments than I would like to admit in any given day where I'm not aware of the kingship of Jesus over my life, or I choose not to be aware of it. I think sometimes we have this notion of the Christian life that I wake up in the morning, or we are supposed to wake up in the morning, do our devotions, which are always fruitful and always helpful, and we go through our day just doing deeds of righteousness everywhere we go. But the truth of the matter is that you are in constant conflict over this issue of kingship over your life. Will you live in submission to the lordship of Jesus, or will you for a moment allow yourself to sit upon the throne? Will you for a moment just allow this little dalliance and sin. I hope that we might be those who submit ourselves consistently and learn to more consistently submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we ask now that you would allow us to be those who take seriously the kingship of your Son. Lord, you tell us in your word that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, that we are to go and make disciples, and we're to teach them, baptize them, and that he's present with us always, even to the end of the age. So Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for his innocence, even in this passage, that he was the righteous sin bearer that now stands and pleads before your throne. So Lord, I pray that our lives would be in full submission we might honor you with our words, with our actions, with our intentions. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.